Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. We're going to read Matthew 5, 1 to 16. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are, you, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You were the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Thanks, Grace. Uh, great to be here, guys. I'm Steve. I'm going to be uh, preaching today. Uh, well, lovely to, uh, lovely to be here. If you're joining us uh, as a new person or you're new to the church online, it's a strange time to join. So well done and persevere with it. And we want to meet you in person as well. Let me pray one more time. Would you just uh, take a moment to uh, wherever you're at, whether you're a believer or not, whether you have had a great week, whether you're delighted to be here or not, let's take a moment to receive what God has for us and uh, receive his word. Lord Jesus, whenever you opened your mouth, there were crowds everywhere wanting to know, hanging on every word. People said they'd never heard anyone speak like you spoke. And here we have a distillation of your teaching. And I pray that you would help us over the coming six, seven weeks as a church, as we study the Sermon on the Mount, to be changed by it, to be formed by it, to be different because of it and to understand you more and understand our role within your kingdom. And as has already been prayed by Emily earlier, to have the lens of eternity uh, and the, your eternal kingdom, not just the present day that we live in, but the big picture of what you're doing. So help us, Lord, and teach us. And we pray, Holy Spirit, be our guide and open our eyes and our ears and our hearts. In Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the greatest sermon ever preached. Um, the impact down the centuries of this uh, sermon is, is hard, to, uh, hard to understate, to be honest. Different cultures through the centuries have thought, what does it mean to live the life Jesus calls us to? Augustine, in the fourth century, described it as the perfect rule and pattern of Christian life. Tolstoy in the 19th century believed if we lived by the principles espoused, all of the evils of our world would disappear and we'd usher in a utopian kingdom. 
And it's not just Christians who've been captivated it. Most famously, Mahatma Gandhi in the 19th and 20th century, when reading the Sermon on the Mount and its teaching on non-retaliation said, I was simply overjoyed and found my own opinion confirmed where I least expected it. These three chapters in Matthew's gospel may have been written 2,000 years ago in a culture completely different to our own, first century Palestine, we're 21st century Dublin, and yet it has currency. Turn the other cheek. Do not judge. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's 2,000 years ago, it's a completely different culture, and yet we know these phrases, we take them as commonplace. This was revolutionary teaching back then, and the only reason we know all this is because the greatest moral teacher of all time stepped onto planet Earth and said, let me tell you what life is supposed to be like. These were revolutionary. No one had ever heard this stuff before. Now, here's a key interpretive tool for understanding the whole Sermon on the Mount. Without it, you will be lost. Here it is. If you read the sermon and think, this is what is required to enter the kingdom of God, all the sermon will do is cause you to despair because no one is going to be able to live up to it and therefore no one can enter the kingdom of God. But if you read this sermon and think, this is what it's like to live with Jesus as my king. I've already chosen to submit to him. Now, would he lead me in his life, in his kingdom? It will make more sense. It's not an entry requirement of the kingdom of God. It's a description of the kingdom of God. This is Jesus's teaching on discipleship. This is not for the faint hearted. It's not for those that are half in, half out with Jesus hedging their bets. This is for those that say, Jesus, you're my king. Now lead me. What does it mean to live in your kingdom? So what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? The passage teaches us that it means three things. It means you're separated verses 1 to 2, you're subversive, verses 3 to 12, and you're salty, verses 13 to 16. Or put it another way, being a Jesus follower means that you are called out from the world, distinct from the world, impactful in the world. Let's look at the three things. Firstly, separated. We're called out from the world. Notice how the whole episode starts. Please notice who is Jesus teaching. Let's read again. When Jesus saw the crowds, crowds are in view. He went on, up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach who? Them, the disciples. Now, one of Matthew's aims in writing this gospel is to show how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament story. He's a very Jewish minded person, is Matthew. So let me ask you a simple question. When in the Old Testament do we see God's servant going up on a mountain, gathering 12 units of people and teaching them a new law or word? That's right, Mount Sinai. Do you remember? God rescued his people out of Egypt, brought them to Mount Sinai to receive his law. And, and what was the point of the law? It wasn't an ethical set of principles to save them. They'd already been saved out of Egypt by sheer grace. They'd been rescued through the Red Sea. They were already a saved people. What was the purpose of the law then? The new word of God up the mountain? Well, amongst other things, when you read Exodus chapters 19 and 20, you discover two things. The law was given to make Israel distinct from the nations around them. 
They were separated from the nations. They were a holy nation. They were a called out nation. The word in the New Testament, most used of the word, the word church is ecclesia or ecclesia, which means called out ones, distinct. And secondly, they were to be a model to the nations around them of the good life. What does it mean to live as God as king and therefore live the good life? For that culture at that time, the Old Testament law encapsulated the wisdom and character of God that would ensure fruitfulness, blessing and prosperity. What is Jesus doing here? He's already called the disciples to him by sheer grace. He's not telling them how to be saved. What he's doing is forming an alternative society on earth. That's what he's doing. A called out society, a separated off society, a holy nation, an alternative community, an alternative kingdom. And he's the king and his word is now the law is now the authority under which we bow. So he separates the disciples from the crowds, just as God separated Israel from the nations. He's choosing his people and saying, I want to show you how to live my way. And why does he do it? Because he says, I want you 12, and everyone that's going to follow you, will follow me as they follow your teaching later in life, to show the crowds what the good life is. Life with Jesus as king. You see, the crowds are in earshot. We saw that. When, the, when Jesus saw the crowds, he pulls people in and says, let me show you a distinct alternative society on earth. So anyone in the crowd who is hungry and wants to put themselves in the kingdom can do so. But you have to be hungry. You have to want in. You have to want Jesus to be your king. So what does it look like to live the good life of this new society that Jesus is forming? Well, it looks subversive. In other words, it's distinct from the world. Jesus's kingdom subverts all the kingdoms of the world. It is an utterly distinct from all the kingdoms. It operates on a different plane, has a different vision, a different set of values, a different timeline, a different manner, a different motive. Where the world seeks money, sex, power, Jesus seeks poverty, purity, humility. Where the world seeks now me quick, Jesus seeks later others at the right time. Well, the world says, grab, take, own. Jesus says, let go, give, lose. Well, the world says, be first, be top, be seen. Jesus says, be last, be under, be hidden. Well, the world says, be a winner, be triumphant, be impressive. Jesus says, be a loser, be defeated, be insignificant, but make no mistake. This is the blessed good life. This is the happy life. The word Jesus uses is the word marikios, which is usually translated happy or blessed and has at its essence the idea of congratulation or recommendation. This is the recommended life. This is, this is, this, if you live this life, you're to be congratulated. You're going to be happy. You're going to be blessed. Why? Because in Jesus's kingdom, the losers are the winners. The last are the first. The insignificant are the exalted. The servants are lifted up. The ones at the bottom ends up at the top. So what is this life? This blessed life? This happy life? Look how it starts. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Happy are those who know they are spiritually bankrupt, 
with nothing of merit to bring to God except their own sins, weaknesses, and failures. They are the ones that receive the kingdom. As Eugene Peterson puts it in his message uh, um, version, you're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there's more of God and his rule. You're to be gra- you are to be congratulated when you know you're spiritually bankrupt. Now the kingdom starts in your life. So naturally, the next stage of the kingdom is blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Once you're aware of your sin and your failure, your bankruptcy, you start to mourn over it. From being aware of your brokenness, you grieve. And not just the brokenness of your sin, but all the loss in your life and all the loss in the world because of sin and death. As Eugene Peterson says, you're blessed when you feel you've lost what is most dear to you. Only then can you be embraced by the one most dear to you. It is recommended that you mourn the sin and losses in your life. Did you see that? It's recommended that you mourn if you need to mourn. Because if you do, you will be comforted. So then from mourning our sin, uh, from, from being aware of our sin and mourning our sin, it's no surprise that it then says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. This is the one that challenges me personally the most. Meek can be translated gentle or humble. It's the word Jesus used in Matthew 11 when he says, come to me because I am gentle and humble of heart. I'm meek. What does it mean to be meek? It means this. You refuse the way of self-assertion. You refuse the way of self-assertion. That's to be meek. Jesus actually here is quoting Psalm 37 verse 11, a psalm that deals with the injustices of life and how in this life it's often the powerful, the strong, the greedy and the unjust who win. And the temptation of all of of us is to self-assert and to ensure that we get justice immediately and we don't let the bad guys win and we seek revenge. And the psalm says, no, 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 leave the evildoers and the perpetrators in the hands of God. He will bring justice at the right time. Instead, have a quiet spirit, be aware of God's help and have the eternal picture that in this life, all the loose ends don't get tied up. The meek are those who refuse the way of self-assertion. We have a natural tendency, I do anyway, to get competitive when others get ahead. Jesus says, don't fret. The meek will inherit the whole earth one day. We have a tendency to take control when things don't go our way. Jesus says, no, 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 that, you won't be happy. Happy and are those that are humble and gentle, who know there's something far greater in store. Refuse the way of self-assertion. Do you see all these beatitudes only have a partial fulfillment in this life? The ultimate fulfillment is the next one. We will receive all these things, partly now in Jesus and his kingdom on earth, but partly in the world to come. So from admitting our sin, mourning our sin, we are then humbled and meek because of our sin. And we refuse to self-assert and aggressively take control. And now, in one sense, you've reached halfway through the beatitudes, you're emptied. You're completely empty of yourself, which is the right thing, because then we can be full of the right stuff. So what does he say? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. 
Jesus is the bread of life and true fulfillment doesn't come through winning and revenge and self-assertion and taking control. We know that it's temporary. It doesn't work. There's another fulfillment that comes when you hunger and thirst for Jesus and his righteousness and his ways. And that's that. But then you will find satisfaction because that can never be taken from you. And now you're filled and there's none of you left. Well, you can start to look out for others, can't you? So it's no surprise that he says, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. You see, you, you can't be halfway through the Beatitudes without realising you've been shown mercy. And therefore, if you have no right or merit before God, but are utterly dependent on his mercy, then when others fail you, when others wrong you, when others rob you, when others snub you, when others ignore you, you show mercy, you have been shown mercy and you will be shown mercy. It's a virtuous, merciful circle. Doesn't our world need mercy right now? And you see, can, can you see Jesus is not really interested in our external performance, but our internal attitude and desires. So he goes on to say, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Outward correctness is not what matters. It's inner holiness. You're recommended. You're happy. You're to be congratulated. You are blessed when you focus on the motives and the purity of your heart over religious rituals and performance. Or as Eugene Peterson says, you're blessed when you get your inside world, your mind and your heart right. Then you see God in the outside world. Isn't that lovely? We're aware of our sin, we're mourning our sin, we're humbled over our sin, we're turning to God to be full of him, receiving his mercy, offering mercy to others. We are now on the journey towards purity of heart. Our desires, our motives, our affection, they're all starting to become more in line with God. The purity of heart will never be complete in this life, but one day it will. And we will see God in all his beauty and we will be ravished and we will be fully satisfied and so once our hearts are purified we can actually seek justice in the right way without any personal gain or self-pity so he says blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called children of god instead of fighting instead of insisting on your own way instead of self-asserting instead of getting ahead at all costs instead of protecting your rights or standing on your rights or holding grudges we can seek peace that's what marks us out as children of our father in heaven, who is a peacemaker. We don't need to compete. But you know that feeling? Do you have it? Everyone else is a rival. You've got to get ahead of. No, no. Not when you're filled with God and you're, you're emptied of yourself. It's, we get frustrated, don't we, when we think, look, they're getting ahead of me. Why are they getting the opportunity and I'm not? But when you're full of God and you've got none of yourself, you can be a peacemaker. And that's the blessed life. Comparing yourself with others, that's going to rob you of all joy. You're not going to be happy. Being emptied of yourself and full of God and entering his kingdom with joy, you can be happy. As Peterson says, you're blessed when you show people how to cooperate instead of compete or fight. Then you'll discover who you really are and your place in God's family. And Jesus now concludes the blessed life in its most radical subversiveness. Let me put the last two recommendations together. 
Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is what it means to be separated from and distinct from the world. The world will often feel threatened by Jesus' followers. The kingdom of Jesus, in fact, has always been a threat to the kingdoms of this world because the kingdoms of this world have no hold on Jesus's kingdom. The kingdoms of this world pose no fear, no threat, and no ultimate harm to Jesus's followers. And that freedom that should mark out the lives of Jesus's followers feels like a threat to everyone else. Jesus walked on planet earth, didn't he? And spoke nothing but truth and love. He's the greatest moral teacher the planet has ever seen. And what did we do to him? We killed him. Why? Because he threatened us. He shook us to the core. We couldn't handle it. And so as we enter his kingdom, we're called to walk on the same path as Jesus and the prophets before him, knowing that our rewards and our riches and our inheritance are not in this earth, but in heaven. Let me quote from Peterson one last time. You're blessed when your commitment to God provokes persecution. The persecution drives you even deeper into God's kingdom. Not only that, count yourself blessed every time people uh, put you down or throw you out or speak lies about you to discredit me. What it means is that the truth is too close for comfort and they are uncomfortable. You can be glad when that happens. Give a cheer even. For though they don't like it, I do. All, all heaven applauds. I know that you're in good company. My prophets and witnesses have always gotten into this kind of trouble. This is the blessed life. How do you feel right now? Jesus has just told you the life that's the happiest. Notice Jesus is not desperate. He's not a salesman who's going to drop his standards and drop his prices so anyone will buy. He wants to create a separation. Everyone is invited, but he wants to be clear. This is the life of the kingdom. Sometimes, don't we, we think we need to make Jesus's teaching more palatable so people will be more inclined to join. No, no. Jesus is king. Everyone's invited. Everyone is called to repent, but he doesn't want us to water things down or make the kingdom more palatable. That is what earthly kingdoms do who are looking for crowds. Jesus is looking for disciples. Do you see? If you think, oh, how do we get more people? Not at the expense of the truth. Jesus wants disciples. The happy life, the blessed life is not an easy life. It's not a life of comfort and popularity, but it's recommended. And in the end, it's the one that's rewarded. So we're a separated people. We're a subversive people. And finally, we're a salty people. We're impactful in the world. Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Question. What does salt do? Well, in ancient times, salt did two big things. Firstly, salt preserves food. It prevents decay. When you have no refrigeration, how do you stop food decaying? You add salt. Secondly, salt flavors food. It enhances the taste. Even today, <laughs> my youngest daughter, Annabelle, if left to her own devices, would take five or 10 years of her life just to enjoy the mountains of salt on everything because she knows how much it enhances the flavor. Salt stops decay. Salt enhances flavor. 
And so Jesus' followers are to live and act in the world in such a way that we prevent decay. We do all we can to stop the damage and chaos caused by the kingdoms of this world. And we do all we can to preserve the good in our world. Where there is brokenness, we're called to bring healing. Where there is loneliness, we're called to bring comfort. Where there is fighting, peace. Where there is hostility, humility. But we're also called to flavor, to make a positive contribution in our culture. We're to enhance it in the way we live and work. We're to engage in the arts and business and sport and in, in raising our families and contributing to local communities. We're to add the flavor of the kingdom that is gentle, that is kind, that is not competitive, that is wholesome, that is loving, that makes society better. But I want you to see the logic today. The only way we can prevent decay in society and flavor society is to be a distinct, different society, to be called out. Israel made no effect on the nations around them when they assimilated with the nations. And so the only way we're to be salty, Jesus says, is if you remain salty. You don't lose your subversive nature. If, if salt loses its saltiness, it's useless. So you've got to be my people. You've got to stay distinct. Otherwise, you can't, can't, you can't preserve, you can't flavor in the world. So Jesus is saying you've got to remain committed. You've got to keep separated. You've got to be salty. If we're, we're not to separate off in such a way as to become a ghetto from society, then, then we can't, in a sense, the salt isn't being sprinkled. But we can't assimilate to society because then there is no salt. We're in the world, not of the world. And not just salt, light demonstrating life in the kingdom through our good deeds, dispelling darkness so others can join and enter the kingdom. Israel was called to be a light to the nations, calling people to worship God. So we're to be a light by our good deeds, calling people to glorify our Father in heaven. How? By our subversive life, life in the kingdom. We're an alternative society on earth. So as I close... I want each of you to take a moment to look at the screen and I want you to pick one state that is blessed, just one. This is one state that is congratulated, one state that is recommended by Jesus, one state that is happy in the kingdom. And think about what it means to adopt this posture, to take this attitude, to live this way this week. Is it poor in spirit? Is it learning to mourn? Is it meek, refusing the way of self-assertion? Is it hungering for the things that will last rather than things that don't? Is it being merciful to those that maybe you could hold vent, you know, you could be angry with? Is it to be pure in heart and to focus on the internal rather than the external? Is it to be a peacemaker when you have a role in a certain community? Is it that you are currently being persecuted or insulted if, because of Jesus and you just need to remember this is the blessed life? Let's take a moment. I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing. Pick one for yourself. Lord, this week I have known what it is to be poor in spirit, aware of something just I did wrong this week. You know it's wrong and the people I've spoken to know it's wrong. And Lord, I've said sorry. 
and I've confessed my sin to others. But uh, Lord, I, I've, I, I have actually experienced the blessedness of being spiritually bankrupt and knowing it, knowing your grace and your favour and your nearness in my brokenness. So I thank you for that, Father, on a personal note. But I pray for myself that you teach me what it is to be meek and to refuse the way of self-assertion, knowing that I will inherit the whole earth one day and I don't need to get ahead in this life. And I pray for all my brothers and sisters and my friends and those on this, this Zoom call, that each of them would see something on that screen and, and remember this is the happy life. This is the blessed life. This is the life to be congratulated. And they would find a way of adopting it more closely in their hearts and in their lives this week. We thank you, Jesus, that you are our king. We thank you that your kingdom is subversive, but we thank you that your kingdom, there is life, and there's wholeness, and there is, uh, there's peace and there's joy and all the things that Helena was saying in her, in, her, in her call to worship. Life, joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit. And we, we just pray this week that your kingdom would come more in our lives and then through our lives more into this world as we seek to be salt and light. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.